I didn't just lose them. They got sick and I had to take care for them. And I had to put their bodies into body bags. And these were friends and these were colleagues. Hello and welcome. I'm Joanne Silberner, Features Editor at BMJ. As a reporter, I covered various disasters like the earthquake in Haiti, the tsunami in Indonesia, and I've done plenty of stories on neglected tropical diseases, but I've never covered an Ebola outbreak. Which is why I'm glad that Oliver Johnson and Sinead Walsh are here today. They co-wrote a book, Getting to Zero. It's about the Ebola outbreak in 2014. Oliver is a British doctor. At the time of the outbreak in Sierra Leone, Sinead was ambassador from Ireland. At the moment, they're in London together to talk about their book. Thanks for stopping by. Thank you very much. Oliver, in 2014, you were a 28-year-old doctor working in the main hospital in Sierra Leone. The doctor in charge had just died of Ebola. What were you thinking? It was a, a really frenetic moment. I mean, I, I'd been in Sierra Leone for a year. A lot of people involved in the response came out for the response. And they came out, you know, went straight to a, a treatment center. But for me, Sierra Leone was home when Ebola started. I'd first gone out as a medical student on my elective and pretty quickly grown some roots there emotionally and everything else. And and so when the Ebola outbreak started at the main hospital, it was it was about us. It, we were part of the team there. Our office was inside the hospital. And, and so it was really our patients our colleagues who were being affected uh, and in particular um, you know we worked closely with the wonderful Sierra Leone doctor Dr. Madupe Cole who was one of the three consultant physicians of the hospital it's a national tertiary hospital and you've only got three physicians there uh, and so he uh, was was courageously leading the unit and when he got sick and passed away it was a real moment of crisis for the hospital because uh, the doctors there realized the Sierra Leonean doctors realized they weren't going to get medivaced if they got sick and there were none of the therapeutic treatments that we have nowadays for Ebola. Uh, And so it felt like a a death sentence for those doctors. So understandably, the doctors, the nurses, everyone in the hospital was scared. Uh, And there was really... A death sentence for you too. Potentially. um, I think we... um, you know, there was always a hope that we might be medivaced. But actually, if I'm honest at that moment, the British government had said definitively, we will not be medivacking you if you got sick. Uh, and actually, Kings in London was having a huge fight trying to, trying to make sure we'd get treatment. Um, but, but we had to face up to the idea that we might not be going home. Um, and yet, uh, for those of us who were there, th- there was never a moment where we thought of doing anything else because these were colleagues, these were our patients. And I think I personally felt it was exactly where I was supposed to be. I don't think my parents agreed with that necessarily. Um, And in fact, you know, for families back home, it it was, I think, more terrifying because I I felt in a position of control. I felt like I could control my safety. I knew what was going on and I was busy every day. But for my parents back home, you know, they didn't know about Ebola. They only knew what they were reading on the front pages. uh, And it was really, really scary. Oh, boy. And Sinead, you were the ambassador from Ireland at the time. You'd been there for three years, and you were trying to get attention to the outbreak. Tell me about that effort. Were you getting much of an audience? Uh, no. Uh, I mean, I think for the first six months of the outbreak, it was extraordinarily difficult to get um, you know, international attention to what was going on, um, which, you know, to to uh, Oliver and I and many others was really baffling because we felt like we were facing Armageddon. I mean, we, you know, people were dying left, right and center. The disease was increasing uh, exponentially. Um, uh, CDC in the US, uh, they predicted, I think, uh, 1.4 million people could die in, in, the, in the next six months. In, in August of 2014, they, they made that prediction. 
Ukraine. Um, and w- for some reason, we just couldn't seem to really get, you know, the world to listen to to what we were saying. Um, and it, it was it was baffling as to why. Um, I, I think what ultimately happened um, is is that you know there started to be a real concern that this could affect the Western world. So when we saw when Kent Brantley got infected in uh, Liberia, when there was the first case in Nigeria, you know, you could almost, uh, you know, sort of it was like clockwork. The the the, the response and the attention and and everything really um, really increased. Um, is that how it should be? Uh, no, you know, we would all want uh, Sierra Leonean lives to be important because Sierra Leonean lives are important. But actually, uh, we did definitely see this strong link to uh, the the extent to which uh, the outbreak could spread to to the Western world. And then we did from September onwards start to to feel like uh, the world woke up and started paying attention. So people weren't responding to you. How are you trying to reach out to them? Well, it was, I suppose, in all sorts of uh, different ways. I mean, we would we would have meetings all the time, uh, trying to 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 get you know call people's uh, headquarters. We we're having video conferences. We were doing media interviews, um, and it's not that it's you know it's not that it wasn't being discussed, but we just didn't see. Uh, resources arrive on the ground. And so you had this really extraordinary situation where, you know, organizations like Oliver's, a sort of a, a British university that was trying to do something, you know, much more long term on health systems was suddenly running, uh, you know, Ebola treatment in the capital city, which was just not how it should be. And and we, we couldn't really understand where the experts were. And, and you know, we had this thought like, you know, there, there's got to be some sort of cavalry and, you know, this cavalry is going to arrive at some point, you know, where is World Health Organization? Where is CDC? And I think one of the things that, that uh, you know, I certainly learned uh, during the crisis was that actually the, the notion that there is a global cavalry that will just sort of come in and, and you know, sort things out is actually a mirage. But what we, I suppose, experienced, uh, Oliver and I, was that when that response came in, it needed a huge amount of assistance to operate uh, properly in the local uh, context because there were so much politics and, and so, you know, so many specificities and the health system in Sierra Leone at the time was so weak and vulnerable to these kind of crises. So so people like Oliver and myself who knew uh, some things about the local context actually found ourselves quite busy. At some point we used to think, oh, you know, everybody will come in and then we will we will sort of sit back. But actually, you know, you, you really need that, that you know, contextualization of, of all those external resources and really to, you know, for, for, to help people work uh, in the, the, the specific context of, of Sierra Leone. You know, I want to get to how the different agencies reacted and performed in a minute. But first, I want to ask both of you, what was a day in your life like before the outbreak and then during? And let, let's start with you, Oliver. So before the outbreak, you know, it, it felt busy. But boy, I didn't know what busy was. So uh, most of my work was going in, being based at the main hospital, uh, being based at the main medical school doing a lot of work on things like curriculum development. So we'd be running training workshops with, with, with partners there, uh, meetings in ministry to, to develop new policies, uh, coordination meetings with other NGOs, a lot of meetings and a certain amount. I wasn't doing any, none of our team really were doing much clinical work because we were focused on, on systems. Um, so it, it felt busy, but we had our weekends and our evenings. Freetown's a beautiful city. 
Uh, and so it's also a really rich, vibrant social life, you know, runs in the evening and weekends at the beach. And so it was a nice balance. Um, but things really began to shift with Ebola. And so once Ebola started, uh, my, my day often didn't start with my alarm clock. It would start with a phone call at 4 a.m. Um, uh, saying something had gone wrong at our Ebola unit at Connaught Hospital. Uh, and so I'd get into my car. Uh, in the dark, I'd pick up my colleague Marta, who was a Spanish infectious diseases doctor. We'd make our way through the, the check, the police and army checkpoints that had been erected through the city, and we'd arrive at the city, at the hospital to, to find out the problem. And um, often in the early days, we were desperately short-staffed because many Sierra Leonean colleagues hadn't been paid for months. They certainly hadn't received the risk allowance bonus they'd been promised. Uh, and for doctors in particular, they'd seen so many of their colleagues die, they were very reluctant to go inside the unit. And so if we were lucky, we might have two nurses during the day, one or two cleaners, and we'd have 20 pati- 25 desperately sick patients at, at night. And the reality was we could just leave one staff member on duty at night, and they were often too afraid to go inside the unit. So things often went wrong with so many of our patients passing on. So we'd have to go in in the night. Sometimes there would be uh, riots in the unit. Sometimes there would be uh, you know, other kind of issues. Um, and often I would arrive in the morning. I'd put on my protective suit. I'd go inside. And, I, and, and the devastating thing was I would see who had survived the night. So uh, in the evenings when we left after you know, making sure the patients had dinner, you know, we'd say goodnight to the patients. We'd be chatting to them. To, we'd, we'd try to make sure they felt at ease. And the horrible thing in the morning was going in. I remember one morning going in, we had a, a six-bay ward uh, and going in uh, expecting to say good morning to the patients and find that all six patients had died during the night. And there I was alone, uh, having to put six patients while in my hot, sweaty bodysuit uh, into body bags one by one and as quickly as I could clean the beds for six new patients to come in. Uh, during the morning, we'd have ambulance after ambulance arrive. You'd think you'd have one patient inside. But actually, the disease surveillance officer would have gone to someone's house and found that the one patient had infected the whole family. And so they'd put eight, nine family members inside one ambulance. So you'd open the ambulance door to carnage, to to bodies, to desperately sick family members, grandmothers, children. You'd try and find them a bed. And so it was really hot, exhausting, deeply uh, traumatic work. Um, but but really, my work wasn't supposed to be clinical. So often then I would be doing media interviews. I'd be rushing upstairs. We created a little media studio uh, in our store cupboard where I'd be on the radio or I'd be on CNN trying to tell the world about what was going on uh, and then rushing often up to the Diffid headquarters where the British Army had set up an extraordinary uh, hangar um, with long trestle tables and scramble phones where soldiers were lined up try- with maps trying to coordinate the response and then late into the night be doing kind of briefings. So it was a real blend of work that I was doing. You'd stagger off home uh, to bed and then and then be woken up in the night by the next emergency. And this was sort of day after day, uh, a life uh, in, in an Ebola crisis. And did you find yourself doing some clinical work? Yeah, so I, I mean, I... Uh, your your listeners will be horrified. I hadn't done my foundation training. I was not s- intending to do any clinical work. My work was policy. Um, but what happened was that things got so bad in August. And one day in particular, I arrived at the hospital to make sure everything was okay. And I found a patient collapsed, covered in blood. And a number of my colleagues, Sierra Leonean nurses and, and security guards, were covered in the patient's blood too and exposed. So I was in a position I had to help them, and the only way I could do that was by going through the storeroom, and it was the first time ever I put on protective equipment. I'd never been trained to do it, but there was a poster on the wall, so I, I worked it out. And I wasn't doing 
it, the, the truth of Ebola is we think of it as a very complicated disease. It's really not. It's a dangerous disease. But the reality of the, the treatment is mostly it was dead body management, making sure a lab supply had been sent, making sure everyone had got their paracetamol and their fluids. But at least in the Sierra Leonean complex, there was almost no complex man, uh, medicine. You didn't really need a medical degree for it. So I was doing clinical work. Um, but the reality was a lot of it was, was logistics and organization. Oh, boy. And Sinead, a day in your life before the outbreak and then during? Yeah, I mean, I, I like Oliver, I mean, before Ebola started, we, you know, we really felt like we had our hands full. Um, you know, Sierra Leone, uh, as you would know, is, is one of the poorest uh, countries in the world. Um, so you have, you know, one in five uh, children don't make it to their fifth birthday. Uh, a, a girl has a 10% chance of finishing school. Um, you know, 70% of the city of Freetown live in slums. So, so for the Irish government, I was working on a lot of uh, issues around nutrition, uh, uh, women's rights, uh, sexual violence uh, response and so on. Uh, governance issues, obviously, as a, as a, as a diplomat, I spent a, a lot of time looking at, at political issues and governance issues. Um, and we really felt like we, we had our hands full. And, and I remember, you know, sitting in, in some of these meetings that we would have, um, you know, with the government. Um, and we just thought, you know, maybe uh, against all odds, actually, uh, you know, we won't we won't get this. Uh, disease and and obviously it 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 wasn't to be um, so so then my work really entirely shifted I mean everything was about uh, Ebola once it started my role was sort of uh, I don't really know how to describe it I mean I've heard it described as harassment actually from other uh, people you know that uh, some of my dear colleagues because uh, we had a real coordination problem in the Ebola response and there was all sorts of things happening and there was really uh, very poor sort of pulling that all together so because I was you know uh, you know one of the people who'd been there the longest in the international community I kind of knew you know, everybody, I had uh, relationships in, in government and so on. So somehow I sort of fell into this role of, of kind of, uh, you know, trying to connect together the different uh, initiatives that were going on and who's funding, you know, this treatment centre and okay, well, if, if if we can, you know, put a million on this treatment centre, you know, as Ireland, can you put a million as, as the US government? What about you, uh, ECHO? Can you? And, you know, so these kind of conversations, which in a normal humanitarian response, there's a whole structure uh, designed to do that and we just um, we for, for the longest time in the response we didn't have that and so I sort of in retrospect I suppose you know took that on um, so I would sort of walk around uh, um, you know the city with with this this sort of bedraggled uh, A4 sheet of paper that had a list of the things that I had to sort of harass various people about you know like Oliver there would be a lot of uh, uh, meetings and then there would be a lot of sort of you know sort of stalking people to to, to sort of uh, you know find the answers to these questions. So every day, uh, every day just brought uh, was entirely unpredictable and just brought all sorts of you know random surprises and and you you could never know at the beginning of the day uh, what the day would be like except you knew it would be long uh, and you knew it would not be boring but what it would bring uh, was was pretty unpredictable. And it was months of that. 
Ebola went on for 21 and a half months in Sierra Leone and 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 I don't think that's well recognized because so few people at on the international level were there from the beginning to the end because a lot of people who come and work on responses like Ebola you know a lot of medical professionals they will come for you know short periods of time because they have you know full-time jobs back here in in the UK and other places so you know for a lot of people you know and and certainly the media coverage in the western world did not go on for very long and so you know a lot of people when I tell them that they say oh but it was only in the you know in the media for a couple of months and I'm like trust me it was 21 and a half months (laughs) I remember it very well we were exhausted I mean Uh, I just remember coming into the office in the morning and I would just be collapsed in my chair and I would sort of melt into the chair I was just so so tired and it just felt like defense things are just being thrown at you and you just had to find it in you to respond again Sinead and I are both pretty fit Sinead's much fitter than I am definitely but the much fitter. physical toll Sinead of <laughs> but you just got so this. used to being exhausted all the time you, you, you know it was it was the new normal you know you didn't even if I was that exhausted you know now I would really uh, you know you would notice it but but then you know I mean everybody was exhausted all the time and, and it was I mean the whole the whole country was entirely different I mean you know in the summer of 2014 you know uh, like the restaurants shut down the nightclubs shut down um you know all of the uh you know any supermarket you went you tried to go into you would have to wash your hands and get your temperature taken any office so those of us who were still in uh Sierra Leone I mean our friends and our colleagues were were often evacuated by their organizations and so you would find yourselves in quite a small a small group. It was quite surreal. Um, but then, you know, it's amazing how quickly we get used to surreal situations. So you, you got used to the exhaustion and the, the, the weirdness of, of living in this kind of Ebola uh, zone. Uh, and, it, and it went on for a very long time. And the palpable fear, the palpable sense of fear across the city that we all felt and that everybody else we could see would feel. And I remember that the US Center for Disease Control produced this model uh, I think in about September 2014, that said if the response didn't improve, you could be seeing up to, I think, 1.4 million infections in Sierra Leone and Liberia, which would be one in 10 people. And it was rainy season. I remember driving back from the hospital to my home at night uh, in the rain and seeing people at my windows and just trying to imagine one in 10 of those people I was driving past being dead. And what, how, you know, was this going to spread worldwide? We just, we were in unprecedented territory. We just didn't know what was going to happen. So now with hindsight, we know, we know it was bad, but, but at the time, it was endless how bad it might get. And so that palpable fear was, was really something everybody was aware of. Well, uh, Oliver, how did the institutions do, particularly WHO? Mm. I mean, I think um, in the early days, uh, a lot of people dropped the ball. Uh, and I think one organization in particular was the World Health Organization, which had a local office uh, in Sierra Leone. And really, they were the go-to people. So they were the people the Ministry of Health in Sierra Leone looked to for advice. They were the people who were supposed to be coordinating across Guinea, Sierra Leone and Liberia. Um, but the reality was really uh, disappointing. The WHO uh, hosted an Ebola uh, response center that was supposed to be 24-7. And the president famously went to this so-called 24-7 Ebola response center, I think, was it early one morning or, or late one evening? Um, it was in the afternoon, yeah. yeah. And found nobody, yeah. nobody was there. Um, now that changed. Uh, some heads rolled early on. Some new people came in. Uh, uh, but by that time, uh, the, 
the the outbreak was already out of control. And once the outbreak was out of control, it was tremendously difficult to put the genie back in the bottle. So I think WHO um, really let us down. Now they've gone through a major program of restructuring and improvement, and I think we're seeing a much better WHO response in the current outbreak in the DRC. I think the UK government was also slow to begin with. So we as as kings, as a British university, we had a tiny project in Sierra Leone, very little flexible money. We just asked for $12,000 from DFID to bring out two infectious disease consultants who were going to go take a month of unpaid leave. We just needed their flights. We needed some buckets, some plastic sheeting. We couldn't get the money because DFID just didn't have a mechanism to get small amounts of cash out into where it was needed. But they also just didn't really have the leadership to push through that problem. And so I think there were a few organisations early on that that dropped the ball. Um, However, I think towards the end of the outbreak, uh, WHO stepped up. Uh, I think the British government put in a huge amount of resource. But really, I think, uh, and this is one of the things that prompted Sinead and I to, to write the book. It's not something we'd ever had as a plan. But I think we really felt like Towards the end of the outbreak, a lot of organizations were were clapping themselves on the back and saying, you know, what a great job we've done uh, to get the outbreak under control. Um, But I think for Sinead and I, we were haunted by the nearly 4,000 people in Sierra Leone uh, who had died. And those are the ones we know about. It doesn't include the thousands of people who died we don't know about. It doesn't include the thousands of people who died of obstructed labour, of malaria, of appendicitis, who died because of the Ebola outbreak, because they couldn't get to a hospital. The hospital was closed or whatever it was. So we were haunted by that. For me, I lost so many colleagues at the hospital. I didn't just lose them. They got sick and I had to take care for them. And I had to put their bodies into body bags. And these were friends and these were colleagues. So there was, for us, I think we felt this, this outbreak and the response was not a success. This was a failure. Um, because we didn't do a better job earlier on. And that's why we wanted to tell our stories. And I think it's a a story of uh, the challenges, but there's also some real heroes in the book. Uh, Sierra Leonean colleagues, um, some of whom died and never got to tell their own stories themselves, um, but also very important lessons towards the end that we need to learn. And so that's why we wanted to write this book, uh, to make sure we didn't make those same mistakes again. And now there are experimental treatments and there are vaccines. Let me start with you, Sinead, as a planner. Do you think it would be as bad the next time? And God forbid there's a next time, but if there were, is it going to be as bad? Well, we, I mean, there, there, we, there is a next time at the moment in, in, in DRC, so we have the opportunity to look at that outbreak, which, which is the worst since our outbreak. And, and there are some positives. You know, as Oliver said, uh, the World Health Organization, they definitely learned a lot of lessons. They are a lot stronger. They're a lot more operational now with their new sort of health emergency structure. I think we all recognize that. Um, the vaccination, as you say, I think over 80,000 people have been vaccinated. God knows how bad the numbers would be. We're already looking at 830 something. No, and today I think it was 872 infections. If it wasn't for the vaccination, I have absolutely no idea, but it would be a lot higher. There's no question about that. So the vaccination, which directly came out of the West Africa outbreak and a lot of very hard work by a lot of individuals to fast track it, that is really making a difference this time. The experimental treatments, I think there's five on the go. Uh, They are also very important to give people confidence and motivation 
obligation to report cases because in West Africa we struggled with that. Like, why would somebody report, you know, that they or their relative was infected and go to this, you know, treatment center where very few people ever came out? I mean, what 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 was the incentive? Why not just die at home with your family? You know, so we we um, you know, so 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 some of some of these experimental treatments at least they they have that uh, that advantage. Having said that, uh, the two you know big challenges I think in in, in DRC at the moment and and uh, you know I think um, there's there's I'm sure many of your listeners know, you know are, are, are probably working uh, directly on this but from what from from my vantage point looking at it across the border from South Sudan, Community engagement, which you know, in our book is is what we term the biggest failure uh, of the West Africa response. That is still a huge challenge. Um, but in 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 Congo, they have an even bigger uh, challenge ahead of them because uh, the security environment is so bad because it's an area of active conflict, and that's not a challenge that we had. Um, and that is really really difficult. But the same themes are there. How do you get the trust of the community? Uh, you know, how do they really see the response? as not an enemy but you know actually a support um, and so we try in the book to to bring out some of the good practices that we eventually got to in in West Africa we we took far too much time but we eventually did uh, have some good strategies for working with communities and and I think that's something that's the big challenge in 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 Congo the second big challenge they have in Congo is around uh, you know this word I can never say nosocomial did I get yes. it right this time yes I never well, get that get right. an honorary medical degree soon. No, Nosocomial infections, infections in hospitals and clinics to the rest of, to, to those of us who are not medical, but 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 that has been up to eighty percent of cases, uh, you know, in in some areas, and so again, just like Sierra Leone, what does this point to? A really weak health system, a, a neglected health system, a system where health workers have not been paid, a system that doesn't have the right, uh, you know, equipment, resources, medication, and so on. And that's then a real challenge for us. And I think this is a big lesson that the world, you know, hasn't learned or hasn't implemented uh, um, uh, from West Africa is we're still not making those generational investments in health system strengthening in these countries. Um, you know, we, we, we still have a tendency to want to focus on, you know, HIV or, you know, maternal health or whatever really important, absolutely critical, but somebody's got to sort out the National Drug Service. You know, somebody's got to really, you know, uh, really make sure that you have quality medical education for that, you know, eight-year period or or whatever the case may be. Um, And there's no shortcut to that, but we all like to, you know, we all like to focus on the patient and and we like to jump to that. And so I think, I think those are, those are a couple of lessons that the Congo outbreak is still, is still struggling with. I'm mindful of your time. I know you have to leave. I'm going to ask one more question of each of you, and it's about the afterword in your book. The afterword was, if we had to do it all again, so my question for you is, would you? Oh, 100%. 100%. I mean, I think there are times when you feel it's going to sound very strange, but it was actually a privilege to be there. It was a privilege to work on Ebola because I felt, I personally, I felt like I was in the right place at the right time. Um, 
because it was a country I knew a few things about, uh, having having been there for a few years. I had some skills from from having worked in in some humanitarian emergencies in the past, um, and because there was such a dearth in the early days of of actual proper uh, experts in some of these areas, uh, you know, I felt like I was able to to make a contribution with loads of mistakes. And and I mean, one of the things now in my in my current role in South Sudan is we're working on Ebola preparedness because we're bored on Congo and on, on Kivu um, and you know uh, I mean fingers crossed we, we, we won't have to uh, put our preparedness into practice uh, but I actually I really like the fact that now in that preparedness phase I can actually contribute from the knowledge of having been through it because when I remember that preparedness phase in West Africa I hadn't a breeze uh, what I was doing you know so now I feel like I can use that experience of Ebola to contribute more productively to South Sudan but I definitely feel like it was a, it was a privilege to be there and and in many ways I mean it was a difficult time but it was also a really great time because we were in solidarity with our Sierra Leonean colleagues and and particularly when a lot of other people left you know, you know, our Sierra Leonean colleagues really were were grateful, actually, that that we didn't all leave, and that and that some of us were were really trying to to help them out. So there was also a, a really strong feeling of of solidarity and 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 togetherness, um, and all having the same mission and goal, and and you know the teamwork that came along with that. And I think for me that compensated for a lot of a lot of the the difficulties and the hardships. And Oliver, would you do it again? I mean, absolutely. I think uh, it was the most vivid and purposeful moment of my life. And I think that will always be true. I can't imagine another experience that would be as powerful. Uh, And as Sinead said, you know, I wish I'd done more and I'd wish I'd done better. Um, But it was an absolute privilege. It's the right word for it. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm still touched with sorrow. I'm still often thinking of the people who you know, who passed and my role in that. Um, but at the same time, the extraordinary colleagues, the, the, the compassion I, was, I saw, the teamwork I was part of, and just the sheer sense of purpose that was driving us every day w- was unique. Uh, and so, yeah, and in many ways, I think for a lot of us, it's been very hard afterwards to find a career or a job uh, that is really meaningful because we just in those moments what we were doing was so powerful so I think many of us and we're still a close bond and we you know uh, well, I've, we've been doing these talks about the book and you, you suddenly lock eyes across the room with someone else who was there and there's almost no words I think returned soldiers often talk of a similar only people who were there at the time can really get together and, and, and reflect an ex- the experience like that so uh, you know without question and, and uh, you know um, I wouldn't I wouldn't have done it in any other way. And now you're getting a doctoral degree? That's right. I'm doing a PhD at the moment. I, I'm looking at leadership. I, the leadership we saw, uh, not across the board, sadly, but from some, particularly some health professionals in Sierra Leone, was transformative. And more and more, when I look at international development work, I realize it's colleagues in Sierra Leone who are going to drive the change. And it's our roles to support them technically and, and with resources and so on. But we can't lead that change. And so my PhD, which is focused on Zimbabwe, Malawi, is looking at how do we support young, early career doctors in those countries who are about to go off and be head of a rural hospital, aged like I was, 27. How do we support them to have a network and reflect on leadership? Well, I wish you the best of luck with that. And Sinead, with your work in South Sudan, thank you for joining us today. Thanks very much.